You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 12 in our Sacrament Series, and our first episode on the Sacrament of Extreme Unction. Father Stephen Reuter will join us to give an introduction into this often misunderstood sacrament. While it can seem that this sacrament is sad, and indeed it is given when a loved one is close to death, we'll look more closely at what this sacrament can give to a soul as they are about to enter eternity. And we'll see that instead of bringing sadness, extreme unction brings peace and even joy to these final moments. Of course, we'll look at what the sacrament is, the form, the matter, the minister, etc., but we'll also discuss some practical aspects to the sacrament. Likely, at some point in our lives, we'll need to make a decision on when to call a priest for a loved one. We'll answer those questions and more over the next 45 minutes. If you like these series and want to help us continue making them, you can help by leaving a small monthly or one-time donation on sspxpodcast.com or by subscribing to this channel on YouTube or by subscribing and leaving a rating for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Thank you for helping us with this apostolate to reach as many people as possible with the beauty and the truth of what it means to be a traditional Catholic. Now let's join Father Reuter for episode 12 of the Sacrament Series right now. Welcome back to the SSPX Podcast, our next episode on the Sacrament Series. Very happy to welcome Father Stephen Reuter. Hello, Father. How are you? I'm well, Andrew. How are you? Good. It's been a little while since we've talked. We spoke last during the Crisis Series. Uh, how have things been for you since then? Things are, are still going. Canada's opening up a little bit, so we Good. pray it gets better. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've been looking at the sacraments, obviously, um, and today we're going to start looking at the sacrament of extreme unction. Um, obviously, we'll look at the traditional form of the sacrament first, uh, and then we will look at the new form next week, like we've been doing mm-hmm. with all of our episodes. Um, this is a little bit of a unique sacrament, Father, in that it's not necessarily always very joyful. Yes, exactly. Uh, most sacraments are surrounded by much celebration and festivity as people prepare for baptism, First Communion, marriage, for example. But this sacrament is unique insofar as it is a sorrowful occasion. A, the, a loved one is about to die, and so that does give a certain sorrow. And yet, the sacrament, when received, in fact gives much joy and consolation because it's preparing the soul for the joy of heaven. It's the final act on earth by which the soul is strengthened and prepared for the wedding feast of heaven. So it's a sacrament which prepares us for the final battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's a sacrament we must try to receive and we must do all we can to make sure that our loved ones receive it before it's too late. Absolutely. Before we get into what the sacrament is in the traditional form, Father, let's look at where it starts at the beginning. We know from doing this series and from our catechism that every sacrament was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But it's not as clear as some of the other sacraments when our Lord did this. Uh, where, Where do we look in the gospel to find Extreme unction, Father. is prefigured in Mark chapter 16, verse 13, when Christ sent the apostles to cure the sick. And scripture tells us that the apostles anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So we see a reference in, in Mark, but that's not the institution of the sacrament. It was announced to the world by St. James, James chapter 5, verse 14. 
and is of faith that this sacrament was instituted by Christ for the remission of sins and the comfort of the sick. And that's very clear in the councils of Florence and the councils of Trent. And so we do see in St. James chapter 5, a quotation which is, is clearly refers to this sacrament, and we'll give the, the full quotation. Is one of you sick? Let him send for the priest of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the Lord's name. Prayer offered in faith will restore the sick man, and the Lord will give him relief. If he is guilty of sins, they will be pardoned. So here is St. James announcing to the world the sacrament of extreme unction. Okay. Uh, what about any other sources? Are there any other, uh, is there any other relevant sources that kind of give us this? Uh, yes. The source of this? Of course. So the church is built on scripture and tradition. And so the existence of the sacrament is then confirmed by the teaching of the universal church. We know that Christ said, he who hears you hears me. So we must listen to the church to know what scripture means. And the church tells us, tells us the sense in which we must understand sacred scripture. We'll give a quotation from Council of Trent. If anyone says the extreme unction is not a sacrament instituted by Jesus Christ and promulgated by the apostle St. James but it is only a usage received from the fathers or even a human invention, let him be anathema. So he would be condemned for, for denying this sacrament. And as this sacrament is a complement and completion to the sacrament of penance, it is probable that Christ instituted it at the same time as the institution of the sacrament of penance, which we know is shortly after the resurrection. So the most common opinion is that when Christ instituted the sacrament of penance, at the same time, he instituted its completion, which is the sacrament of extreme unction. And sacred tradition likewise confirms the existence of this sacrament. The fathers of the church who speak of extreme unction speak of its usage by the church as a sacrament of the new law. The fathers of the church also agree that this sacrament is for the spiritual and corporal welfare of the sick. It's uh, it's interesting, Father. We've been looking at, at, at again all these sacraments. We have just a couple more to go. Um, but at each stage in our life, we have a sacrament. Our Lord has given us a sacrament at the very beginning of our life. You know, throughout our life when we fall, throughout our life when we need help, and now at the end of life, we have help at the end. Yes, we do see the providential care of God for all of us. He wants to care for us from the beginning of our life to the end of our life. And St. Thomas does bring that up, and it's recorded in the supplement to the Summa, where extreme unction is treated, as an argument of fittingness. So the supplement tells us that, that the sacraments are given to us for each point of our life to supply for the necessities of that, of that moment in our life. And no other sacrament prepares us for death. Therefore, it's very fitting that we have this sacrament to prepare us for a good death. So that is an argument of fittingness taken from St. Thomas Aquinas. Oh, it's beautiful. Well, that's, that's where extreme unction comes from. Now mm -hmm. let's dive into what it is. So can you give us the definition or, or what extreme unction is, Father? Yes. 
So extra unction is a sacrament of the new law by which is conferred through the anointing with duly blessed oil and the prayers of the priest, spiritual health, and even health of the body when expedient for salvation of the soul on a person who is seriously ill and capable of grave sin. So as the doctrine of the church is very clear, she gives definitions which give us all the elements that we need to properly understand the nature of the sacrament, the purpose of the sacrament, as well as the elements necessary for the validity of the sacrament. So in that definition, we see everything needed for the validity of the sacrament and also tells us the effect of the sacrament. Okay. So we can consider these elements in order to better understand the sacrament. We'll just note before to analyze each more deeply that it is of faith that only a priest or a bishop who possesses the fullness of the priesthood can actually administer the sacrament. So okay. not much needs to be said there, except that it is of faith by the Council of Trent. And as you've already seen with Father Robinson, you know, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So we don't need to go into that. But I think we can start with the remote matter of the sacrament, which will be very important, especially when we consider the change in the new rite to the matter of the sacrament. But the remote matter is the oil of the infirm. And it's olive oil blessed by the bishop on Holy Thursday. In the traditional rite, the priest can be delegated to bless this oil, but it is the proper role of the bishop of the diocese. And to, to quote the Council of Florence, the fifth sacrament is extreme unction, the olive oil of which is blessed by the bishop. And so Florence tells us it's olive oil blessed by the bishop. And in ordinary times for lawfulness or lyseity, we must use the, the oil which is consecrated that year from our diocese. Of course, there are times in crisis where we can't get that oil. And in, in such a case, we would use the oil from the previous year until we're able to get the new oil. But for lawfulness, we must use the bishop, the oil blessed by the bishop of the diocese that year. Okay. And, and the reason for a blessing, we can look at the supplement again of the Summa, is that each sacrament receives its efficacy from Jesus Christ. And we know that with baptismal water, it doesn't need a special blessing, even though there is baptismal water for a solemn baptism, but it's not needed for validity. And the reason giving a reason of fittingness is that Christ, in a certain sense, sanctified all water by descending into the water at his own baptism. Yet Christ never had any such contact with olive oil. And therefore, this oil must be made sacred, made holy by a bishop who was consecrated. And then that oil receives the power to transmit the grace of Jesus Christ to the soul. And another reason is it shows the hierarchy of the church. The fact that all blessings come from God the Father, through the Pope, through the bishops, through the priest. It shows there's a hierarchy in the church by which we receive the good things from that hierarchy. Okay, that makes, that makes sense. Um, Father, you keep saying olive oil. So it has yes. to be olive oil, not... Canola, vegetable, coconut. Yes. So tradition and the theologians have told us that it must be olive oil. And we do have doubt, as we'll see later, as to the validity 
of any other oil used for confirmation or extreme unction. And so the reason is that the very word oil comes from olive. We say olive oil is oil par excellence. It is oil in the strict sense of the word. Every other oil is called such insofar as it's an imitation, as a resemblance between this, the substance called oil and olive oil. And so that's one main reason. The very word itself means olive. Another reason of fittingness, St. Thomas tells us, is that Christ, he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Olives. So there's a real fittingness that olive oil must be used as Christ began his passion in the, in the Garden of Olives. Therefore, we do hold that it's most probable that olive oil must be used for the validity of the sacrament. So that's the, that's the remote matter. Um, what is the proximate matter, Father, of the sacrament? So the proximate matter consists in anointing the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, and feet. So the priest uses the thumb of his right hand and makes the sign of the cross with this oil, the oil of the infirm, on the five parts of the body prescribed by the Roman ritual. We'll see that in cases of necessity, imminent danger of death and the inability to anoint the other parts of the body, the priest can anoint the, the forehead, yet if the person is restored to health, the priest would be obliged to complete the anointing, anointing all five senses for the perfection of the sacrament. But it's the anointing of the senses by the priest using his thumb of his right hand. And then the, the form of the sacrament? Yes, yeah, so the form is always most important because we know the form of the sacrament determines the matter. It makes the material element intelligible and therefore making a sign. And in the case of the sacraments, we're speaking of an efficacious sign, a sign which transmits that which it signifies. So the form is essential. And the form in the traditional rite is through this holy unction, and his most tender mercy, may the Lord forgive you whatsoever sins you have committed through, and then for each sense you have the proper word, seeing, hearing, smelling, speaking, touching, walking. And so to quote the supplement of the Summa again, we quote, because the healing of the internal wounds cannot be perfectly signified save by the application of the remedy to the various sources of the wounds. Hence, several actions are essential to the perfection of the sacrament. So we know that our disorders were possible and manifested themselves through our senses. So we sinned through the senses. We received information through the senses. And therefore, we must anoint all those places where we typically sin. Our eyes and seeing, our nose, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet. All these instruments which we've used to wound our soul. So the form must express the following. The action of the minister who acts in the place of Christ. So when we give a sacrament, we're acting in the place of Christ. So through this unction, as we take our right hand and anoint the senses through this unction, the sense is anointed. But we must also express the principal cause, which is God. That's why we say, His most tender mercy, may the Lord forgive you. 
So God, the source of all grace, the principal cause of all grace, through Jesus Christ, then through the priest as an instrument, through his mercy is anointing and therefore healing the wounds of the soul. And the subject is thee. We give it to one person. Um, We anoint that one specific person at a time. And the effect is pardon. Pardon, which is given through this unction. So we see how contact is required in the sacraments. We know the Protestant notion of just grace kind of floats around and people receive it by asking for it. Well, it's true. God is infinitely merciful and he pours grace out. But he wants us to receive the grace of the contact from another human being using an unction blessed by a bishop. And through that holy unction, God's mercy touches the soul. And one reason for this is to keep us humble. The fact that we need to have this contact with these creatures, the creature of the oil, the creature of the priest, but also to give us certitude. When the priest anoints a soul, often a great calm comes over them because they have the certitude from the church, from Christ, that through this holy unction, their, their soul is healed from its diseases. And as in the case of all the sacraments, the actual sacrament is surrounded by many solemnities and rites, to prepare the recipient to properly receive the actual sacrament. And we'll look at some of these elements more closely in the the next episode. But we know that the sacraments work by their own power, ex opere operato. But we have to dispose ourselves to receive the grace. We have to make sure we remove the obstacles and open up our soul to be touched by the grace of the Holy Unction. That's beautiful. It's interesting, Father, um, looking at the form, it says, may the Lord forgive you whatsoever sins you have committed, etc. It's different than confession. In confession, Father, you say, I absolve you. Um, But here in Extreme Unction, it's may the Lord forgive you. What is the difference there? Yes, there's a distinction there. So in the sacrament of penance, the priest is a judge. The person comes and accuses themselves of their sins They manifest externally their disposition to be pardoned. Therefore, the priest is able in the imperative to to really forgive the sins. Here is often the case where the person is unconscious. We're uncertain about their dispositions. But also there's secondary effects we'll see later, which is the curing of the body. And also when we see the effects, the primary effect will be the fruits of sin, the remnants of sin. But also, we're also praying that their guilt be removed as well if they're disposed. Oh, interesting. Okay. That was a little side note. Um, Thank you for answering that. Um, Let's look at the subject then, or the person to be anointed. Uh, What does the church say about this, Father? Yeah, so they must be baptized. Baptism is the door to all the other sacraments. And of course, if they're validly baptized, we have to ensure they're Catholic. If they're not Catholic, we have to at least require some assent of faith, some retraction of their heresy. Because there are some baptized souls who do believe in last rites, but we would oblige them to make an act of faith, as simple as it might be, in the Catholic Church. But they must be baptized. You cannot anoint a non-baptized person. And the subject is obliged to do all that they can to be in the state of sanctifying grace, whether it be by a sacramental confession, which is the most certain way to be in the state of grace, or, if that's impossible, an act of perfect contrition, 
if they're unable for some reason to confess their sins. So baptize, if possible, in the state of grace. Likewise, they must have reached the age of reason. So if they're under the age of reason, or if they're permanently in a state by which they've never been able to use their reason, there's some defect by which they never developed their reason, you cannot anoint them. And so as soon as a child does reach the age of reason, whether it be legally, age seven, or they've manifest acts of reason and they fall terminally ill, they can be anointed because the sacrament is for sins committed after baptism. And every sin must pass through the will and we can't choose something unless we know it. And therefore, we do, if we don't have at least something of the age of reason, we are not proper matter. We cannot receive the sacrament of extramunction. There's no personal sins to be healed. It says, Likewise, they must be dangerously ill. We cannot give extreme unction to an otherwise healthy person if they're in danger of death from an external cause. They're going to war, an air raid, shipwreck. You can't anoint such people because the danger is not internal, a sickness, because as St. James says, if you be sick, it was instituted for healing those who are sick in body and have the ability to be sick in soul from personal sins. So we can't anoint people who are otherwise healthy just because some extrinsic cause might take their life. And the Council of Trent tells us this unction should be made on the sick, especially on those in such a dangerous state that they appear to be about to be about to depart from this life. And the danger of death need not be extreme, but real. That's really important. Often people think extreme unction and therefore don't call the priest until the extreme last moment of their life. But in fact, that's a grave sin. We must call the priest as soon as there's a real danger of death so the person can be aware, alert, and so the priest can try to incite in them great faith, contrition, confidence in God, and a willingness to suffer well. So it's extreme insofar as, as is the last unction we receive, but we should not wait till the extreme last moment of our life. Once we have a, re- a real danger of death from an internal sickness, we should seek to be anointed. So again, it's, it's balance like with, with most things in the church. Uh, you don't mm-hmm. want to give it to someone who has the sniffles. Um, But at the same time, um, you know, very real circumstances, someone has COVID and they are seriously ill. You don't want to wait until they're on a ventilator or unconscious or something like that. You want to call in a priest when they are in the hospital and suffering from this. Yes, especially with the way hospitals are today. It's very hard to get into the hospitals. So today we recommend that people err on the side of caution and receive extra motion before they go to the hospital for any illness, which does pose a real threat to their life insofar as hospitals are very, very challenging. And we've had cases, one, where we just couldn't get to the hospital um, because the the hospital authorities just wouldn't let any visitors in. Usually we're able to maneuver around that, but we do need special care today to be anointed before we go to the hospital, as long as there sure. is a, you know, a reasonable danger of death. Right. And we could spend 20 minutes going through all kinds of hypotheticals, like I'm sure mm-hmm. you've done many times in catechism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we would just say, if you have any questions or thoughts about it, just call your local priest and he can guide you through it. Exactly. And when in doubt today, then it's more prudent to be anointed than not to be anointed. As long as there is some 
sickness, which leads to death, even if it's not imminent. So, okay. Well, what about, um, what about extreme old age? Uh, aunt Betty is 97 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, can you anoint her? So it can be considered an illness when it's clear that the body is failing and death is approaching. So old age in itself is not a sickness, but you get to a point where the body is just you know, coming apart, so to speak. The organs are failing, and all those failing organs clearly make it so you're, you have something wrong. It's a sickness, a failure of organs. And so, yes, anybody who is getting to a point in their life where death is approaching, even if there's not a diagnosed disease, they should still be anointed and okay. before it's too late because people can die in their sleep of heart failure or whatnot without ever expecting it. So once you get to that very old age and um, it's clear that the body is, is starting to fail, then they should be anointed. And like we've mentioned already, uh, again, just to reiterate, it is much better to anoint someone who is conscious, not unconscious. Exactly. Because an unconscious person, we can't be sure of their dispositions, nor can we help them increase their faith, their contrition, their dispositions to receive the sacrament. And so they really should be conscious if, if possible. Now, of course, when we are in the hospital and all the priests see this, recently we were called to, to somebody's deathbed who we were told they're unconscious, they haven't been to the sacraments for many years. Um, they never asked for a priest, so I was actually wondering if I should go, especially with all the challenges to get in there. They weren't a faithful at all, and I decided, well, I'll go, and because we'd rather be safe than sorry when eternity is in the balance. So we went and we got past all the you know the crazy COVID protocol and got into the hospital. And the person they said was unconscious, but I was able to hold her hand, and she was able to blink and acknowledge I was there, and give certain signs of contrition. And so we do, it happens every priest frequently. So when the doctors say they're unconscious, there's nothing left, it often doesn't mean that they can't hear you and have some interaction with you. So it's um, always to be done, uh, always to be attempted. But there are certain rules we'll see later about um, when we anoint the unconscious and when we don't. But when they're fully awake, it's much better because we can excite them to great contrition. And then we can be certain of their dispositions and help them prepare themselves for the sacrament. In a scenario like that, would you just ask, Father, are you sorry for your sins? Squeeze my hand if you're sorry for your sins or something like that? I usually ask them to blink the eyes because the squeezing uh -huh. of the hand can often be just a reflex. So uh -huh. I usually do blinking of the eyes. And then if that uh -huh. doesn't work, I'll go to squeezing of the hand. And in this sure. case, she was blinking her eyes to show contrition. Yeah. Great. So, well, we already started talking about this a little bit, but then what does the recipient of extreme unction need to do? We've talked about who it needs to be, needs to be baptized, mm -hmm. someone in danger of death, et cetera. Uh, if I'm receiving the sacrament, what do I need to do, Father? So the recipient must have at least an implicit desire to receive it, which means if they are aware of their condition, aware of the danger, they would want to receive it. And this intention is presumed when it's a Catholic who is living a Catholic life. Every Catholic who is living a Catholic life, if they fall unconscious, well, we presume that they want to receive the sacrament, and therefore, our faithful who fall unconscious, we give them the sacrament absolutely with no condition. Unless, of course, they express the contrary. That's a whole different story. But a regular Catholic who falls into a coma or unconscious, we anoint them absolutely. 
If we doubt that intention is present, which can be the case with a fallen away Catholic or somebody who fell unconscious in this act of sinning, for example, like, well, their very life didn't really show any dispositions to conversion. In that case, we can hope that they still have the habitual disposition to receive it. And therefore, the church in her mercy wants us to give the sacrament conditionally. We don't give it absolutely because we don't want to put the sacrament in danger of invalidity without sufficient cause. But nor do we want the person to die without this last chance because the sacraments are for men and for men's salvation. And therefore, if we do have doubt, then we anoint conditionally. The only time we wouldn't anoint is if the person before falling unconscious clearly indicated they don't want the sacrament they re- or they refused it or in some way made it clear they don't want this sacrament. In such a case, they're radically indisposed to receive the sacrament and therefore we would not administer it. Okay. Um, I, I have a medal and on the back of it, it says I'm a Catholic, call a priest. Are, is wearing that or having some sort of indication, oh, yeah. is that a good idea? Yeah, it's a good idea because it makes it very clear because in a world in which there's very few Catholics, we come across cross car accidents or we don't know. And therefore, if you do have an indication you're Catholic, that's a big help for the priest. Okay. So, um, This sacrament, it's it doesn't give an indelible mark like some of the other sacraments. Can it be given again and again? Can someone receive it twice, three times? Yes, there are certain... No norms to be observed, but as there's no character, it can be repeated. Yes, as taught by the Council of Trent, if the sick are restored to health after receiving this unction, they can nevertheless have the help of this sacrament when they are once more in the danger of death. So if somebody's in danger of death, the danger passes, the danger comes back, they can be re-anointed again. That's, for example, if they got cancer and then heart disease. That's very clear. They're in remission for cancer, but then they have heart disease. But even in the case of, for example, cancer, let's just say at one point they're in grave danger from the cancer. There's a bit of a remission. They get better. Then the danger comes back. They can be re-anointed again. And that's Uh, confirmed by the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Okay. And when there's doubt... Pope Benedict the 14th of the 18th century he said when there's in doubt whether it should be repeated then we should repeat because it comes back to the fact that sacraments are for men and for men's salvation and when we look at the effects of the sacrament we'll realize that we deprive somebody of maybe their last chance at heaven by not giving them this sacrament sure well that's um that's all very interesting um Let's look next, Father, at the effects of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we'll, we'll get into it. This is one of those sacraments that has two main effects. But mm-hmm. where do we start with this, Father? So the effects of the sacrament, I think we can just start with the Council of Trent, which gives us so much you know, clarity on this point. So it is a faith that Christ instituted this sacrament for the remission of sins and the comforting of the sick. And I will quote Trent directly. The anointing takes away sins if there be any still to be expiated. And also the remains of sins and raises and strengthens the soul of the sick person by exciting him to greater confidence in the divine mercy 
by which the ill person will bear more lightly the miseries and pains of this illness and be fortified to resist more easily the temptations of the enemy who lies in wait of his heel. And at times, when expedient for the welfare of the soul, restores health to the body. So in that quotation from the Council of Trent, all of the effects are contained. And now we can look at St. Thomas Aquinas, notably the supplement to the Summa, where he breaks those down a little bit more for us to see the different effects of the sacrament. And so we'll give just parts of this of this quotation from St. Thomas. And each sacrament was instituted for one principal effect. So each sacrament has one principal effect, though it may, in consequence, produce other effects besides the principal effect. So the principal effect is gathered from the sign conveyed by the sacrament. So you saw that in the first couple episodes. Each sacrament is a sign we want to know the principal effect, we look at the sign, because that tells us what's signified. And in the case of the sacrament, it affects that which it signifies. So the chief object of the institution of the sacrament is to cure the sickness of sin. Like in the healing of the body, a living body is presumed. So, of course, we don't heal somebody's body once they're dead. They're dead. They're physically dead. So like in the healing of the body, a living body is presumed. So the curing of the soul presupposes that the soul is living, which is to say in sanctifying grace. And that's what we call the sacrament, a sacrament of the living. We presume the persons in the state of sanctifying grace. But then St. Thomas continues, since, however, this strength of the soul is given by grace, which is incompatible with sin. So we know that. As light expels darkness, so grace expels sin. So as grace is incompatible with sin, so in consequence, if the sacrament, so to speak, finds sin in the person, right? The priest is anointing the person. They're not in the state of grace or they're laden with many venial sins. If the sacrament finds these sins in the person, It also removes the guilt of the sins, provided there's no obstacle, which means as long as the person is not attached to their sins, and as long as they have at least a attrition, a fear of hell, then the sacrament will actually take away the guilt of sin in addition to the remnants of sin. Wow. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So, as you said at the beginning, oftentimes the confession is done or the sacrament of penance is done before extreme unction. But again, mm-hmm. like St. Thomas is saying, in cases where that may not be possible, the extreme unction can kind of seek and exactly. find. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It can give sanctifying grace as a secondary effect, as we'll see in a little bit, because grace removes sin. And if the person's unconscious, not through their own fault, they have a mortal sin, which they do have attrition for, it will remove it. Wow. So those are... St. Thomas is saying that there's primary and secondary effects. What is, let's dive a little deeper first into the primary effects, Father. So the primary effect is the increase of sanctifying grace in a way that corresponds to the purpose of the sacrament, which is to remove the remnants of sin. So the purpose of the sacrament is to remove the remnants of sin. So we presume sanctifying grace in the soul, 
This sacrament increases actual grace. The sign that of anointing the organs through which we sinned, that symbolizes healing whatever remnants remain in the soul from our past sins. So that's the primary effect to, to cure the remnants of sin. And by remnants of sin, we're speaking of a few different things. We have the temporal punishment due to sin. We know that whenever we sin, we have the guilt of sin, which is directly forgiven by the sacrament of penance. But we also have the consequence, the temporal punishment due to that sin. And each one of us must pay for all of our sins, the temporal punishment that is, in this life or the next. In this life through personal penance and mortification, or the next life through purgatory. So that's a fruit, a remnant of sin. And so the sacrament of extramunction is meant to take away the temporal punishment due to our past sins. Likewise, our past sins deprive us of many special graces. So the sacrament of extramunction can restore all these graces we need to, to be holy as God intends us to be holy. Also, our past sins give us an attachment for evil and a distaste for things which are holy. That's also cured by this sacrament of extramunction. It gives us a taste for things holy and a hatred for things evil. So you said that extramunction uh, remits the temporal punishment. Does that mean if I receive extramunction, I have no purgatory time left? It certainly has that power from Christ. Okay. But a lot depends on our dispositions, our spirit of faith, our contrition, which is why it's so important to receive the sacrament when we do have the ability to be aware of what's going on, try to increase that spirit of faith and the power of the sacrament, as well as to make acts of love for God and hatred for sin. And the two go hand in hand. Our hatred for sin is in direct relation as our love for God. And so, yes, it has the ability to do that if we're properly disposed, which is why the traditional rite surrounds extramunction with so many beautiful ceremonies to help us realize what's going on, the power involved, and what God wants to do to our soul. And it's something to pray for, to pray for the spirit of faith yeah. in all of the sacraments. And the last of them is the sacrament of extramunction. Absolutely. And it also gives us what we call actual graces or sacramental graces, which means it gives us all the actual helps we need to die a holy death. So each sacrament has what's called sacramental grace. Those sacramental graces help us reach the perfection of that sacrament. The perfection of the sacrament is to heal our soul and to die in the state of grace and to repair all the debts of sin. And therefore, we'll be given actual graces, actual movements from God, which touch our intellect and touch our will to make the proper acts of faith, hope, and charity with great faith so as to die a holy death. So at our disposal are all the actual graces we need to die a holy death thanks to the sacrament. And then the, the last thing that you mentioned, there's the, the last part of these primary effects is a distaste for that, uh, for for sin, a yes. distaste for what is evil. Yes. And that's very important because, you know, we are creatures of habit and our bad habits have a tyrannical hold on us. We see that with people dying, you know, these bad habits haunt them and they're inclined to these things. So this really helps give us a distaste for evil and a love for the good. 
So if you live your whole life in a state of sin and you're just inclined to the sin, the sacrament is a very powerful remedy to overcome these inclinations. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, next, let's look at the, the secondary effects, Father. Um, those are the primary effects that we looked at. The secondary effects would be what? So the secondary effects, as a consequence of the increase of sanctifying grace worked in the soul by the sacrament, the guilt of sin can be remitted if it be found. And when we say the guilt, we're saying the guilt of venial sin, but also the guilt of mortal sin, as long as the person has attrition. And this is clear in St. James, where he says, if he is guilty of sin, so he uses the word guilt, if he is guilty of sin, they will be pardoned. And to give a quotation from the Council of Trent, extreme unction can be regarded as a more certain cause of first grace. So, of course, we have first grace and second grace. First grace is the receiving of sanctifying grace, which is given generally by baptism and by penance, by confession. And so, extreme unction can be regarded as a more certain cause of first grace than the sacrament of absolution given to an unconscious dying person, since the absolution cannot have effect unless there's an act of attrition manifested externally. Whereas for extreme unction, nothing more is required than habitual internal attrition. So we know when we go to confession, we must express externally this attrition for our sins. We kneel down, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. We express externally that we have this contrition, this attrition at least, this fear of hell. And so you need that for confession, whereas this sacrament does not require that. As long as a person has internal attrition, even if they can't manifest it, the sins will be forgiven. Therefore, all care must be used to see that extreme unction is administered to one who is unconscious. So again, that's the Council of Trent. So we see a great power. Somebody's unconscious. They can't express their attrition, but they have a fear of hell. The priest anoints them, increases sanctifying grace, mortal sins incompatible with sanctifying grace. Therefore, their sins are forgiven. Uh, Father, do you mind clarifying something real quick? Um, mm-hmm. You've been saying attrition, and I think you clarified it just just in a second, uh, just mm-hmm. a second ago. Attrition versus contrition. So we have contrition, which we should all strive for, which is perfect when there's a perfect love for God. And of course, with perfect contrition, all of your sins are taken away by that very fact, as long as you have a desire for the sacraments. But when we speak of attrition, it's supernatural. It has to be supernatural or it's not attrition. But the supernatural can simply be, I don't want to go to hell. Right? That's a supernatural reality. So it's much less than, I'm actually sorry because I hurt Jesus, who's infinitely good. That's what we should strive to have. But that's not required for somebody dying in a coma. As long as they fear hell, that, that attrition for their sins, their sins can be forgiven. So that's basically the same thing as what we've learned in our catechism is uh, imperfect contrition. Mm-hmm. That's what attrition is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, fear of hell. Thank yep. you. Uh, and then the last part of the secondary effects is uh, health to the body, impossibly. 
Yes. So it's one of the reasons why the form is in the form of a prayer is because if the health of the body is good for the salvation of the soul, there are times when God grants it. And that is something we pray for and something which does happen sometimes, which is one of the reasons why you don't wait to the extreme moment of death because then you're just tempting God. You should receive it when there's a real danger of death. And if a longer life will benefit your soul, then God will often grant a healing of the body. This is fascinating, Father. I I knew that extra unction was uh, important, um, but going through all of these, all of these effects, all of these things that it can do, it's, um, it's very powerful. It's very important. Yes, indeed. And we could, you know, end with some words from the Council of Trent on this, the importance of the sacrament. For although during our whole life, our adversary seeks and discovers occasions of devouring our souls by all sorts of means, yet there is no time in which he employs his wiles and deceits more carefully and more efficiently to destroy us and deprive us, if possible, of confidence in God's mercy than when he sees us about to quit this life. And so the devil is is a roaring lion. We pray every day at Compline, a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. But he knows as we're getting weak in body, as our strength is failing, that's when he really tempts us. Often people think that as they get older, temptation is going to go away. In fact, the opposite is true. The weaker our body gets, the harder it is to resist temptation. And the devil, as this roaring lion knows, he might have one last chance, one last week to get us in hell. So as he's trying to devour our soul, this sacrament is so important to strengthen our soul, to heal the wounds of our soul, to give us a taste for the, for the beautiful, for charity, to give us a hatred of sin, and to give us confidence in God's mercy. We need that when we're dying. The devil brings all of our sins before us, and we need this confidence in God's mercy as we're passing from this life to the next. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. Father, thank you. Uh, could you give you're us welcome. a little preview of what we'll be looking at next week then? Yes, we'll show how the new rite has really taken away the sense of the battle. And we'll see how it focuses primarily on the body and bodily health, psychological health. And it removes the focus on our soul, our eternal soul, that soul which is going to be in heaven or hell for all eternity. Yeah. Very good. Father, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it.